Hello, and welcome to Get Mad with Vesper Moore, your place for all things transformative mental health, mad pride, and disability justice. Disability only becomes tragedy when society fails to provide the things we need to lead our lives. That is the quote of today's guest, Judy Human. Judy is an internationally recognized badass disability rights activist. For more than 30 years, she has been involved on the international front, working with disabled people's organizations and governments around the world to advance the human rights of disabled people. She has been instrumental in the development and implementation of legislation such as Section 504, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the Rehabilitation Act, and the United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. She was responsible for the implementation of legislation at the national level for programs in special education, disability research, vocational rehabilitation, and independent living, serving more than 8 million disabled youth and adults. Judy also served official terms in appointed positions for both the Clinton administration and the Obama administrations. She produces a podcast called The Human Perspective, which features a variety of members from the disability community. Judy is considered by many to be the mother of the disability rights movement. Her advocacy has paved the way for disabled people for generations to come. It is an absolute honor to welcome today's guest, Judy Human. Hey, Judy. Uh, I'm so glad you could join me in the Get Mad studio. Good to see you, Vesper. Thank great. you for inviting me. It's great to have you on. So we recently connected and... I am so excited to have you here. There's so many things, um, as always. And I, I think what's really striking about your career and also your work in disability rights is that you, along with many others, fought for rights prior to the ADA. I, I, was, I was wondering if, if we could talk and just kind of start like right there. What, what have been some of the noticeable changes the last 32 years? Well, I would actually talk about the 56 years because I'm almost <laughs> 75. So my timeline really dates prior to the ADA because 504 is for me, a very critical piece of legislation that um, also happened, also happened for a number of reasons, but needs to be looked at in relationship to the ADA. So for me, one of the momentous things that happened in the 20th century started in the 40s and 50s. There were things happening earlier I'm not at all saying there weren't, but for me, um, it's very much seeing the growth of a movement, something that we could call a movement. And the beginning 
of a real recognition. And I hesitate on using the word beginning because, you know, people like Ari Naaman are doing a historical review and he'll have more facts prior to uh, the 20th century. But from what I, and I think most disabled people see <clears throat> is in the 20th century, a real beginning of the emergence of a disability rights movement. And by that, I mean people that were coming together, recognizing that there were so many areas that we needed to work on and that there was a lot of commonality um, across many communities. So access to education, access to education with appropriate accommodations and well-trained te teachers impacted people, whether they had an emotional disability, a physical disability, blindness, deafness, and intellectual disability, learning disability, whatever, because all of us were really having to combat the ignorance of people not really looking at those of us with disabilities as an asset, but really looking at those of us with disabilities as a deficit and without recognizing that things such as uh, benefits like social security, um, disability insurance, et cetera, were things in part that needed to be provided when one acquired a disability where they were in need of assistance um, in a whole host of areas. But instead of looking at these financial supports as a means to enabling people to be able to continue to thrive and contribute, I think people frequently look at this as a drain on the system mm -hmm. and that people can get a certain level of support, but it's not necessarily, you know, the amount of money that someone needs to be able to live in a place which is accessible near transportation um, in order to be able to get to work, for example. So these kinds of discussions really were beginning to happen in parent organizations, veterans groups, blind community, deaf community, and uh, physically disabled community. And as we were learning from each other about the needs, people really began to recognize very slowly and for various reasons that coming together was much more beneficial than being apart. And also I think one of the important things in relationship to your program is that there were people who were survivors of psychiatric treatment who very much recognized that they needed to be able to come together in order to both discuss, um, I think as individuals, 
discuss the pain that they had been experiencing, but also then, like other components of the movement, to really talk about what is that people wanted and what were the barriers to achieving it. And so we saw this in many ways. And um, for me, one of the exciting parts was, you know, I grew up in Brooklyn. I was involved with disability rights there from a very young age. I was a founder of a group in New York called Disabled in Action. Then when I left Brooklyn to go to Berkeley, both to be involved with the Berkeley Center for Independent Living and go to graduate school at UC Berkeley. Um, there were different things that were going on in Berkeley than in New York or in California than in New York. And part of it was that there were programs in place like something called in-home supportive services, which enabled people who met the criteria to get money to hire and pay someone to do personal assistance work. When I was living in New York, um, there were some programs, I'm sure, but they weren't as commonly known. And I think one of the reasons why they might've been known more, like in Berkeley in particular, was because of the university town and there were disabled people like Ed Roberts and John Hessler and others who had started the Disabled Student Services Office, which was very much proactive organization that was very uh, limitedly, but importantly, cross disability, because it worked with people with all types of physical disability and blindness and low vision. Others also, but those were like the people on the staff. And the whole concept of disability control, which I was definitely involved with in New York, but in, in Berkeley, it was both at the Disabled Students Program and at the Berkeley Center for Independent Living. So I think um, when looking at the achievements, a lot of these actions were the result of local organizations, college campuses, um, in some cases like in California, California Association of the Physically Handicapped, which did more than um, work with people with physical disabilities. But also, I think when you go back and like look in your state at how this evolution, revolution was happening, um, I think a lot of it can be looked at from the perspective of disabled students, organizations, other local groups that were being formed, like Disabled in Action and Pride in New York, which doesn't exist anymore. But the veterans groups are very important. So we've seen a gradual recognition that our voices as disabled people need to play a prominent role that we needed to move away from um, non-disabled people speaking for us, 
not just in telethons, but we could not gain credibility if we were not speaking on our own behalf. Um, I think that's an essential issue. So when I think about critical things that have happened in my lifetime, it's been the development and emergence of a cross-disability movement, which is still not as strong as it would like it to be, but it is continuing to grow. And in that happening, also uh, groups of people who previously were not, um, didn't have their own organizations. So it's not just the community of people with psychosocial disabilities, but those with intellectual and developmental disabilities and learning disabilities and others. And then even within major organizations, um, the four organizations having representation of disabled people on their boards. I think the independent living movement has really um, changed the dynamic um, of what people need. Yeah. Um, and and want and are kind of demanding. And likewise, I think um, slowly in communities where there are disability rights activists, um, people are beginning to look at the fact that, you know, where are the disabled people? And we need to make sure that there are more disabled people engaged, particularly on issues representing disability. But I think the movement itself um, has recognized that the the diversity of our community, meaning not just by disability, but by sexual orientation, religious backgrounds, um, racial diversity, that disabled people come from all these communities. So it was important that we um, really continue to look at creating not only a cross-disability movement, but one which really also was working with major organizations and minor organizations and our local, state, and national levels that addressed us civil and human rights issues, but in the 70s really were not very inclusive of disability. And I think that's been changing. Yeah, there's been this this evolution, right? A lot of people have been talking about disability justice and inclusion of that intersection. And I think with this, like it's a really good way to kind of get into, you know, we were talking about in our previous conversation, we had just touched on it, but intergenerational cross disability. Could you talk more about this idea and how we can organize cross-movement a little bit more? Because you're talking about California, you know, there's so much in the Bay Area, there's so much in Berkeley, there's so much er erupting at this time. And, you know, I look at like, you know, circumstances like CVS versus Doe, I look at, uh, you know, some of the things that we've we've heard these last few years that have erupted. I, I look at the fact that hundreds of thousands of disabled people have died, you know, um, and it's, it's important to kind of maintain a certain level of hope, right, and have pride in our identity, pride in our communities, right, just having disability pride being so important. Um, 
But pride needs to lead to action. Yeah. So pride allows us to say that we believe in ourselves, we believe in our community, we believe in our value. And if we believe in our value, then we need to look at the impact of those who don't value us equally. And mm -hmm. so when we talk about COVID, we're clearly saying, for whatever reason, not good. Um, people who have whatever they call it, underlying conditions, disabilities, disabilities, and underlying conditions. I know, they call us by many names. <laughs> many names. And, um, but it really equals devaluation. Mm. And so I believe that one of the um, tragedies during COVID um, was, is still the number of people with disabilities who died. But I look at it also saying that laws like 504 and the ADA and the growing coalition um, and education of many allow people to really intercede to make sure that some of the draconian rules that could have been propagated, in fact, were not. But that in no way, shape or form means that we are out of the woods because we still have not, people still look at disability as a tragedy and people still have great difficulty. And I understand imagining themselves having a disability because in so many ways, the fact that we haven't um, integrated disability into life as other issues have been integrated um, really results in inappropriate images and representation of disabled people in a way that doesn't allow people to say, oh, I want, I want to be one of them, but not at the, oh, I want to be one of them. We might be, oh, I respect that person, I this, I that, but I want people who want to, I, I want people to recognize that disability is a normal part of life and that regardless of age, people want to be included in society. And what are the barriers for that happening? Now, my mother, my mother was a very big activist. My mother was my strongest advocate when I was growing up. Wow. But when my mother got cancer and she was unable to walk any long distance, um, she wouldn't go out in a wheelchair. And I was like, Ma, you're my mother. Yeah. And, why, and she never gave me an answer. I don't think she had one. But I think even for her, the association, not only of the wheelchair, but someone having to push her, mm -hmm. really made her feel that she was losing her independence. And um, obviously that was true. Uh, she didn't have a motorized wheelchair and therefore she couldn't 
independently push her chair. Um, but I think when I look at the issue of intergenerational, and there is more work going on in this area and more younger disabled people becoming older mm -hmm. um, and also recognizing like, I don't want to be in, I don't want people to think about me in a way that takes my dignity away. I want people to be looking at the model of um, independent living, which doesn't mean doing things on your own or by yourself, but it's directing, giving guidance on what you want. And um, so I've been involved in aging and disability issues for many, many years. And I guess in some funny way, I first got involved when I was in college and um, I had a summer job at the William Reed Day Center for Senior Citizens. And it was in this big um, housing development and the William Reed Day Center was in a building just for seniors. And then the other buildings in the project had people of many different ages. And I loved children. And so when my mother would drive me and help me get out of the wheelchair, kids would come over. You know, what's that? Blah, blah, blah. And um, I, of course, would engage with them in discussion. So I worked there for like six or eight weeks. And I was becoming friends with the kids. And I worked there for two summers. And so getting the seniors to allow me to have some of the kids come to the center was like a big deal. Yeah. But they didn't want them in their space, in part because sometimes they were problematic with older people. But, you know, my feeling was you need to know people, that if you're hiding from people, that's not good. To me, now that I'm going to be 75, and many younger people who are becoming older, we don't like the model. Um, not that we don't need the supports. So personal assistance services is a huge issue. Making our homes accessible is a huge issue. Coordinate, helping coordinate services is a huge issue because the healthcare system is so poorly coordinated. Those are all things that are very valuable. And I think the senior community has really done some important things in recognizing this. But on the same token, the development of nursing homes, senior living uh, developments, I have difficulty with because I think community-based services are important. And typically people are leaving their communities. They want to downsize. Uh, they want things to be easier to be able to get to and participate in. And I think if we're, if we're designing our communities uh, to be intergenerational, people shouldn't have to go and live at such an, with such an expense um, in separate communities. I've never been a supporter of segregated housing for disabled people or for segregated housing for older people. 
And, um, you know, it is where we are still now. But cases like Olmstead um, have been very important. The development of independent living movement, really um, looking at all these issues and working uh, to expand laws and services, um, but certainly in the area of home and community-based services or personal assistance services, we have a lot further to go. Mm. Yeah, and you know, I look, I look at a lot of these issues around the world, right? I mean, we're, we're also talking about like public and private sectors and like the United States, and like a lot of those issues, right? When we're talking about CVS versus Doe and we talk about, you know, um, rights and, and public education systems and different spaces, right? And housing, but like some of my work with the Convention of the Rights of Persons with Disabilities, I've I've heard of circumstances, you know, for example, there was one circumstance with a, with a gentleman who was named uh, Nagarantham um, Dharma um, Ingham. And he was in Singapore. He was a Malaysian person in Singapore. And he brought three tablespoons of heroin into Singapore, right? Um, now, illicit substances, all that, right? Like, like governments have rules around. However, uh, this person, you know, like there's a headline, right? And, and, you know, talking about how this man with a mental disability is incarcerated for this many years and he's up for ed- execution in Singapore for, for, for possession of these substances in an authoritarian government, right? And, you know, I, I see circumstances like that and it's... It's hard to get, kind of go like, okay, we're we're coming far along here, right? Here in the Western world, here in the West, right? But then in so many different places, you you see disabled people literally dying because of the the political climates of some spaces. I mean, Human Rights Watch, which I'm on the board for, has done some very good work and in investigation on conditions for people with psychosocial disabilities, and you know, the, the the situation that you're discussing clearly is terrible. And I, have they been able to get um, the sentence reduced, do you know? No, he, he ended up being executed. Unfortunately. He was. Yeah. yeah, he was. He was. And um, people, there, there was outroar around the world from various people I, I've, I've known some some activists who were speaking on on you know the, some public platforms in Singapore and um, there there just wasn't enough traction to actually get them to let him free or, 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 or reduce the sentence well I think people with psychosocial disabilities in so many places are really treated in a despicable way but again organizations representing, people with psychosocial disabilities who have been very vocal at the UN is so, you know, very, very important. And doesn't mean that we get the resolutions that appropriately should be happening. Um, It's really terrible. And, but equally terrible are people being tied 
to beds and poles and trees because there's no supports for the families and being treated like animals. These problems exist in, in many countries, including the United States, I think. The degree of what happens, like we've just been discussing, um, is not as severe. However, the lack of services and um, still lack of knowledge and respect does result in people with psychosocial disabilities um, being at much greater risk and equally not able to make the contribution that they're capable of making. I, I appreciate that insight. And that's, you know, that's the truth, right? Even if we are in the United States and it's not as severe in those ways, I guess, you know, as, as, as we could talk about, there's still, there's still lack of services, there's still lack of access, there's still so many different things. And, you know, there's that's still not- inappropriate treatment of yeah. children in schools. There you is. Know, kids being at five years old, handcuffed, being brought out of school because they misbehaved. Yeah. Um, and they may have an emotional disability, whatever it is. I mean, these are terrible things that should not be happening. Yeah. You know, so, so, you know, we have, we've, we've been doing some very important work in the U.S. and in other countries, but it's not where we need to be. And I think our, the, our influence with other groups like the International Disability Alliance, I think is very important. And again, local organizing is so very important. It is, it is. And, you know, it's it's as easy as like, well, not easy, but <laughs> you can organize, right, with uh, by, by talking to your district attorney about what might happen to black disabled youth in your area, right? You could, you could talk to, to, to people at the local level, and then that really leads to that collective organizing. You can do more of that work. Um, and that's, and that's an important part of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's so it, it, it is hard to talk about a lot of these things. Um, but, you know, learning more about you, I know that when you were first diagnosed with polio, people would walk on the other side of the street when you were a kid, right? And not for a long period of time, but when I was in the hospital and people didn't know what polio was, really. So yes, when I had polio, people didn't know how polio was transmitted. And so even when I wasn't in the ho- in the house anymore, um, they would still walk across the street because they were afraid of their kids catching. Um, That's not the worst thing in the world, but it was very clear that people were not informed. I mean, we see with COVID, we've seen it with HIV. So it's um, lack of information, but it gets back to a point I was making earlier about people's fear of disability, fear of the unknown. And the reason why I think it's, so very important that the voices of disabled people from all of our communities be out there is so people can get a much better understanding of who we are, 
where things are working well, what changes need to be made, and how people can be involved, and how, again, I say, disability is a normal part of life, which means you don't walk away from it. You need to look at what needs to be done to improve things, and you need to be a part of it since someday you may well be a part of it as a disabled person or having a family member in your home who has a permanent or temporary disability. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. I think you usually say it's statistically very likely you will become disabled at some point in your life, and and that's and that's just the truth. We have such an we have we have a society where accessibility there there's so much that needs to be done, right? I think it's important that we talk about. I I am cautious about the word accessibility because mm-hmm. too often people think about it as physical accessibility which obviously as a physically disabled person is very important to me, but um, access to rights and justice and being able to look at what it means, you know, consciously looking at what discrimination is and what we need to do to prevent discrimination and to address it when it happens. Those are things that I think are very important. People need to be able to become much more deeply knowledgeable about what the impact of discrimination is and the failure to provide appropriate supports and to collaborate on the kinds of systems that we need. Yeah, yeah. I I think I've heard you say on a few occasions, I'm tired of being grateful for the toilet of this, like, like I'm tired of being grateful for these, 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 these bare minimums. Right. Yeah. Like, and that's, that's so important to, to what we're talking about. You know, um, I want to talk a little bit about your work with the world bank, if we can briefly, um, and, and, and some of your work on, on those presidential administrations with the Clinton and the Obama administration. What was it like having that transition, right? Where you were occupying space, you were, you, you were blocking roads, but then you were in the world of bureaucracy, working as a bureaucrat in a lot of senses. What was that like, that journey? When I first started working in the Clinton administration, I also had a model of my friend, Ed Roberts, who had worked, my friend Ed Roberts, who had worked as the com- commissioner um, or director of the Department of Rehabilitation in California and how he brought other disabled people into senior positions and how, while he was definitely working in a bureaucracy, how he also was able to make changes within the system, not as quickly as he wanted, but the changes were critical and longer lasting. For me, when I went to work in the Clinton administration, I was excited about being able to work as the assistant secretary in the Office of Special Education and Rehabilitative Services for a couple of basic reasons. In that office, there was the Office of Special Education, which I had experienced as a disabled student. There was the Rehabilitation Services administration, which I had experienced as a student, and there was the National Institute 
on disability and rehabilitation research, which when I work at the um, World Institute on Disability, we had received a number of grants from them. And I had a reasonable understanding of the three components and the Office on Independent Living was also under a Rehab Services Administration. So for me, I, I understood that moving from the community into government would be a change of roles, but I never ever perceived moving from the disability community organization to government as saying I could no longer be engaged. I couldn't be on boards. I couldn't work for them while I was in government, but I knew who many of the people were. So one of one thing that was very important for me was to make sure that disabled people were regularly at the table and parents and that they were involved in review committees, et cetera. And then the senior team that I brought together were majority disabled people also. So we had, we had a really great group that believed in what we were trying to advance. And um, we clearly did not change the world, but I do feel like we made a difference. And I do think we were able to bring the voices of people not only into OSERS, but into other parts of the Department of Education. And equally importantly, uh, the Clinton, Clinton administration also hired numbers of disabled people who were activists in senior positions. So Susan Daniels became, uh, moved into a significant position in social security, Bob Williams into health and human services, Mark Bristow as the head of the National Council on Disability, Paul Miller, who um, worked in the White House and one of the areas he worked on was recruitment of disabled people. So um, Becky Ogle, who went to the Department of Labor, Liz Savage, who went to the Department of Justice, so there were very knowledgeable people, plus many, many others, who, because of their knowledge as disabled people, the work that they had been doing for many decades in various ways, um, and the fact that we basically all got along with each other and could work together and strategize together. And I gave a lot of credit at that point to the Clinton administration and then the Obama administration for picking people who are not yes people. You know, they they were valuing who we were. They knew we weren't yes people. Didn't mean that we couldn't work together with others because, you know, life, when you're dealing at such a national level, it's about compromise, but not giving up what you believe in. So we certainly, in work that... Um, we were doing an education. We made some important changes, but we didn't make all the important changes we wanted. And we lost some things when 
the Republicans took over the House and Senate. But at the end of the day, I think people feel we did a reasonably good job. And in the Obama administration, likewise, you know, he had some really um, dynamic disabled people working in the White House and people that were appointed to position across government. And so it was noticeably different um, from the Democratic administration uh, and the Republican administration. Um, Bush one had, you know, people like Evan Kemp was very influential at EOC and Bob Funk, but um, not the number of people that Clinton and Obama had. Yeah. And that's, that's really powerful that we had that representation, you know, so. And, and we're yeah. seeing that now also with the Biden administration. We are, we are, yes. we're seeing more of it. You know, uh, recently I, uh, I got to go to the confirmation of Justice Jackson with the Bazelon Center and the American Association of Persons with Disabilities and many other groups. And that's amazing. Yes, it was great. And as we were on the South Lawn, what I thought about was the signing of the ADA. I thought about that emergence. And, you know, the ADA just had its 32nd celebration as well. And uh, such an important history that we see there. Um, being involved with the Baslon Center and being at the swearing in of Justice Jackson is, I think, a simple and clear message about progress that's been made. I mean, the Bazelon Center really is one of the preeminent organizations representing the rights of people with psychosocial mental health disabilities in so many ways. And those are things, you know, we need to, we need to speak about the progress that we've made because there are tragedies every day. But I think knowing about efforts that are making a difference helps us work harder and helps us believe that we can achieve more. Thank you. And, you know, I'm looking at the time and I'm thinking about like our, our conversation and just reflecting, you know, there's, there's so much that's happened throughout these years that you described, there's so much that's been done. And I wanted to just ask, looking to the future for disability rights activists now, what, what messages do you have for them as they organize and they continue to both safeguard our rights, but also really just expand the idea of dignity in different spaces for disabled folk at large? We need to be very aware of the environment that we're living in. We need to understand the risks that are out there with the new Supreme Court and the 400 judges that have been appointed, conservative judges. And I say that because there's always been a problem of sometimes having cases move forward that are not, that we don't necessarily look at what the downside of losing a certain case may be. And in a different structure, um, the harm might not be as bad as we've seen with Roe versus Wade. 
But now I think it means we need to organize more. We need to really be looking at local elections, city councils, school boards, board of supervisors, state legislators, congressional and senatorial elections. And we need ourselves to be out there registering people to vote, working collaboratively, fighting against suppressionist laws that are making it difficult for disabled people. And we need to be working in coalitions with others. So work, for example, that groups like the American Association of People with Disabilities are doing the Disability Rights Education and Defense Fund, the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, the Bazelon Center, National Council on Independent Living, National Association of the Deaf and Blind, and on and on. We need to be supporting and working together. And we need to look at the fact that a significant percentage of disabled people have invisible disabilities, including people with mental health disabilities, depression, anxiety, what's happening to children and young adults as a result of isolation from COVID. So I think one of the changes that have gone on over the last decades is we went from being a large group of people who were well able to articulate the problem. But we learned very early on that we need to be able to be knowledgeable about solutions, which means we need to be involved in making those, creating those solutions in the research that's gonna be done. And then we need to be involved in the application. So the future really is the strengthening of our movement, the knowledge of our movement. And I think enabling people with visible and invisible disabilities to no longer be afraid and ashamed or fearful of identifying because of their fear of what could happen. Thank you for that wisdom. I mean, in that I hear so much, particularly the fact that the, the, uh, that, that folks, disabled folks at large, really need to be able to see themselves, look within, but also kind of look at our society and kind of realize that like, yeah, like there, there doesn't need to be this internalized ableism that we carry. There's so, there's so many things in our society, you know, I, I find that a lot of people are afraid of talking about anti-ableism efforts and a lot of those pieces as well. And, and the validation of a form of discrimination. And I appreciate just all of those visions you've shared for the future. I really want to thank you for this. It's been a great opportunity. It's Thanks. a pleasure having you on. And, you know, I look forward to more conversations and more organizing. Mm-hmm.